Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Pyle. And I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, welcome back to another weekly melting pot episode. My guest today is author Maza Mengiste. Maza is Ethiopian American and she lives in New York. She was shortlisted for a Booker Prize in 2020 for her novel Shadow King, which I understand from all the research that I have done, took her 10 years to complete, but we'll hear all about that from (laughs) Martha. Thank you so much for joining me today on Melting Pot. I'm really happy to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you. It is really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, I mean, I uh, like I mentioned to you before we started recording that I have a copy of your book. I've had it for a while and uh, I've, I've just started reading it. So I'm not going to be sounding very knowledgeable about all the content in your book, but I've done enough research to know that it's it's a project that is very, very close to your heart. Um, so I'd love to obviously talk a lot about your two books, because I understand you've written another book called Beneath the Lion's Gaze. But before we start talking about, you know, your books and what sort of, especially with Shadow King, all the effort that, that went into it, all the research you know, and all of that. A little background on you. I live in the United States, in New York City, as as you said. I have lived in the U.S. for a majority of my life. I still have family in Ethiopia, and that keeps me connected to the country. I started very late in life as a writer compared to many of my peers who seem to have been writing in college or immediately out of college When I decided to quit my job and go to graduate school for a degree in a master's in fine arts, I was one of the oldest in my class. It was not an expected career move for me. Being a writer was not part of my vocabulary growing up. I I didn't know that. I was supposed to be a doctor, uh, according to my family. So (laughs) 
it's been a wonderfully surprised, a wonderful and surprising journey to get to this point because it had not really been planned. But I knew that I liked to read. I knew that I liked to discuss books, their ideas, the characters, all those things with other people. I like to write about it, but I didn't know that that could actually lead me into writing my own books. But it was thanks to the encouragement of teachers that I had, of professors who took me seriously, uh, that I was able to, to make this big leap into a world that I really didn't know much about at the beginning. And here we are now. And I read somewhere that before you, so there was something that you said earlier that you were supposed to be a doctor. So does that <laughs> mean that it was something that you wanted to do? Or was it something that your family uh, in Ethiopia is that, I, I know you've mm-hmm. been living in the mm-hmm. US many years, but yeah. in your culture, is it like, I know it is in India, at least it used to be, where you needed, growing up, you were told you were you were expected to be an engineer, a doctor, or essentially an engineer or a doctor. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that that sounds very, very familiar. That is exactly the way it was. I, as a child, my my parents would tell me, you will be a doctor. (laughs) So when they would ask me, what do you want to be at six, seven years old, I would say a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> because I, I didn't know better. And in fact, in high school, I was good in science. I was, you know, I was winning these awards for both biology and literature and English. But when I, I went to college, I went in as pre-med. I, my intent was to study medicine, but I knew immediately in that first semester that this was just not the way for me. It was really a wake-up call. And it took a while to switch to a degree in literature, partly because I knew how upset my family would be. But by the end, I made the switch. We had a big fight and then they got quiet and accepted it. And I just kept moving on. And then here you are. (laughs) You were shortlisted for a Booker Prize. I wonder how your parents reacted to that. Well, they, my mother was, was absolutely thrilled. She, she was, she couldn't believe it. She was maybe more excited than I was. Uh, My father has passed away, but when my first book came out, he was alive and it was a relief for them because once they saw the book, they could understand what I had been doing. It made sense then. And then when I was nominated for the booker, it just, my mother was was absolutely thrilled, my entire family. I'm sure. I'm proud of you as well. <laughs> so your first book, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, uh, when did you write that and what is it about? Uh, I wrote that book or that book was published in 2010. And it is set during a revolution in Ethiopia that began in 1974. And it installed a military dictatorship that would last until 1991. My book, though, just really considers the early years of the revolution and centers the story around a family with competing 
political ideologies, but really I follow the, the patriarch of the family who is trying to keep his family safe. He has two, two adult sons. One has moved into working with a, with a revolutionary group. Another one is just, the other one is just trying to stay low on the radar and avoid any kind of political strife. Uh, the patriarch Hailu is a doctor and eventually in, in the book, he's told to take care of a political prisoner, someone who was interrogated, and he is told to heal her so that they could take her back into custody. And he has to decide what he's going to do. So is this fiction or did you sort of pick the characters from uh, real mm. stories? You know, the book is fiction. Okay. It's, I was working off of stories that happened to friends of mine, things that I remember from the early days of the revolution. I was really also thinking about the United States. At the time that I was writing this book, we were in this you know, horrible war with Iraq and Afghanistan. And those photographs with, about, from Abu Ghraib had just come out at that time. And those were those photographs of soldiers, American soldiers abusing prisoners, taking photographs of them and then exchanging those images. And I realized when I was writing this book, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, which is fiction, that I was also writing a story that was not about Ethiopia, but about the ways that all countries and human beings who have power will abuse their power on many different levels. And that those images from Abu Ghraib helped me begin to understand what happens in those small, intimate spaces between oppressor and oppressed. And I wanted to reflect that through some of the characters, for example, the prisoner that Hailu has to treat. I, I was asking questions that are not only about Ethiopia, but about United States. You know, I wanted to make this character Hailu a doctor. Because I knew at the time, this is during the Bush years, that there were medical professionals involved in the interrogation of prisoners. It's always been the case that these people who have been, who have taken an oath to heal and, and to keep human beings safe have also been forced or they choose to collaborate on the side of the oppressor, on the side of colonialists. And I wondered about that complicated space and what happens if a human being, if a doctor who recognizes the physical costs of a revolution, of an uprising, is ordered to do something that is completely against his ethics, mm -hmm. but it is still what a doctor should do, which is heal and keep patients alive. And I wanted to examine that. Yeah, fascinating. So while writing that first book, how connected did you, I mean, clearly it seems like, you know, you wanted to bring in uh, different aspects of a revolution through your story. And how, how affected do you get when you write something like this personally? That's a good question. I, it does, it, especially when I write it down the first time, maybe the second time I go through it, it's, a, it's an emotional experience. It's difficult to write difficult scenes. 
And then at some point, I have to put on my writer's hat, my editor's hat, and I have to go back through it. And I'm looking at it with a different eye. And so it helps the more I go back and see it for the way the words are set into place. You know, are there other ways that I can edit this? Can I make this shorter? Can I make this clearer? Does it need to be longer? Those kinds of approaches to difficult scenes help me distance myself from the actual emotional content of it. But initially when I'm writing it, 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 is, it is really difficult. And the same thing for The Shadow King. Yeah, because Shadow King took you 10 years to write. Mm-hmm. And I was reading somewhere that at some point you even uh, decided to drop the manuscript and then you picked it up again. Mm-hmm. So uh, how did you start to, I mean, how did you actually conceptualize this and what prompted you into getting into that part of history in Ethiopia where, you know, the the Italians and the Ethiopians were at war, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. how, how did you actually decide to, you know, start to write about that part of history? Because this happened way back in 1935. So I'm not sure how long it lasted for, but of course, I'd like to hear all of that from you. So, so how did you actually start to think that this is something that you want to write about? I was interested in this story initially because I had heard it growing up. As a, as a child, uh, this was a story that people in Ethiopia, everybody knew this history of the way that a group of Ethiopians who were not so well armed, who did not have uniforms, they had spears, they had guns that might have been 40 or 50 years old, if they were lucky. And somehow, after five years of conflict, they were able to kick out Italians and these Italians were some of the best armed. They were the one of the most advanced militaries in Europe at that time. And this was a David and Goliath story. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. It, the Ethiopians were not supposed to win, and yet they did. So this is a story that is just part of the narrative, Ethiopia, part of an identity. And it felt like a natural place to look when I was thinking about my next book. But what's also really fascinated me about this history is the way that I I kept discovering how much larger it was than what I had first imagined in the sense that, okay, yes, it's a story about Ethiopians fighting against Italians, but towards the end of the war, there were people from different parts of the world also involved in this. You know, part of the British forces were there. And with them came soldiers from India, soldiers from Kenya, soldiers from Sudan, South Africans were involved. This was, it became global. We just forgot about it once World War II kicked in. But those stories uh, of the way that it was an international, it was a, the the entire world was focused on this. And it involved groups of people from from other parts of the world. That was fascinating to me. And that that really drew my attention. How much research did you need to do? Because obviously, the backdrop of your book is 
this event in in uh, this historical event but in order for you to be true to you know t- true to the 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 story you must have had to do a lot of research so were you able to get enough information from from the archives of in ethiopia or did you also have to look elsewhere i was working with oral histories in ethiopia talking to people asking questions i went to italy to look in archives to look at the documentation they kept of of this moment and the archives helped me provide a framework for this war it it gave me some basic facts of when things how would you like to look 5 years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit juvederm.com. That's j u v e d e r m.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com/acast. That's burrow.com/acast. burrow.com/acast. This happened, but what I was understanding pretty quickly in my research in Rome was that I was looking at archives that This is these were materials from 1935 to 1941 which was the length of the war. Those were materials that had been written, collected, censored and published by fascists. This it was a curated history that I was looking at and I didn't know initially how to get the truth or the fuller story of this war. On the Ethiopian side I had stories of bravery, of courage, of a united front against the Italians. On the Italian side, I was getting a story of the benevolence of Italians, the the fact that it was a civilizing mission, the fact that there was no real harm done to people that they were attempting to colonize. And I knew that those were two extremes of a narrative and the truth was somewhere in between the reality was somewhere in between i started speaking to soldiers descendants in italy people that whose grandfather great uncle older brother went to war in ethiopia and i started discovering from talking to them letters that they wrote home 
diary entries, photographs that they took, things that they brought back with them that were not censored. And that is really where my research grew. In Ethiopia, was did you find documented archives or like you mentioned, it was mainly by talking to people? Because in Italy, like you said, it was all curated to, it was like a very uh, skewered, narrative. Whereas in Ethiopia, were you able to, was that a time where, you know, things were documented? Because obviously, this is a very, very important uh, historical moment in Ethiopia. And so, so how different was the, the way, you know, the archives were kept? between the two countries. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Pyle, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. There were documents in Ethiopia, some documents, but the level, the the degree of, of record keeping, um, the way that records were kept were not the same as in Italy, Ethiopians, they, you know, people in the villages didn't have cameras. They, they weren't writing things down on paper. Things were remembered. Details were kept through oral history, through the repetition of stories, through songs that would commemorate a certain battle. There were people who wrote their memoirs after the war. And those were documents that I, I looked at as well. But in both of those, both on the Ethiopian side in terms of documents, memoirs, uh, as well as on the Italian side, those accounts were not providing me with the daily life of oh, someone in a military yeah. camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how yeah. did life change? How did, how did food prices increase? What happened to the farmers? How were people surviving that way? You know, all those little things that you need for a novel to give your characters life. It was through those journal entries and reading of a soldier saying, I just bought this jug of alcohol and it cost me three times my weekly salary and it's half full of water. And I realized these were the ways that Ethiopians were also rebelling against the army. <laughs> so I, I'm, I was finding out those things through journals. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow, that's a yeah. lot of research. So why at some point did you drop the manuscript? What is it that kind of, were you just, was it just fatigue or were you not getting anywhere? Or what, what kind mm -hmm. of was the reason for doing that? And then why did you pick it up again? Well, I finished the manuscript and I was not happy with the way that it had turned out. And there was a story that I that I had imagined, but what I had ended up writing was something that was completely so focused on the research and the historical events that my characters felt lifeless. Hmm. It felt like characters were just moving through historical moments and there was no real there was no life in the book. And I don't know if I, I, I did, I don't know if I, I, I would say I would, dr I dropped the manuscript. Well, what I did do is I got rid of it and immediately started writing another one. I wanted to give myself 
complete freedom to do imaginative, creative thinking in the novel. I wanted it to be not only a novel about history, uh, about a historical moment, but a novel about people, how memory works. Yes. And about people, absolutely about people so that anyone who reads it might be able to connect to the characters because they felt real. Yeah. So did you incorporate some of the stuff that you'd written in the original manuscript into the into the new writing? I thought I would. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't turn out that way. It was really all from scratch because that second version of it was so completely different. The characters stayed pretty much the same. The war, I knew what would happen at the end of the war with the actual history around it. But the way that people lived their daily lives, the way they interacted with each other, the things that they said to each other, the way that they moved from one moment to the next, all of that completely changed. And I think because you had done so much research and you were and you had all that information in your head because of all the research that had gone into it i think you were able to probably then look at it then it would have been easier for you to add that information into the new storytelling right you weren't singularly focused on the historical event any longer uh, because you already had clarity on that and Mm -hmm. you could therefore then just focus on the characters I guess and you know Mm -hmm. and and their daily lives and what what went into how you know their behavior their uh, the way they lived and all of that probably you were able to then look at it in a more what's the word in a more objective way I guess Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It gave me freedom. And because I I knew the research, like you said, I had worked so long on the details of this war, I could put away those books and just give myself the freedom to write. And that really helped. So, you know, the years that I spent on that first version were not wasted. It really helped me get to this point. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. I think no effort is ever uh, wasted. You're always able to (laughs) use at some point. Okay, before I move away from the book, are you, is it, is it now being made into a film? It is. Yeah, so it's, (laughs) it's really exciting to think about what will happen with that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I don't know when, I don't know when it will be released. They're really just in the early stages of production. Okay, but did you write the screenplay for it or no? No, I did not. Okay. The director, Casey, Casey Lemons, is also the, the writer. Oh, I see. Okay, wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it, yeah, it's always interesting to make that comparison especially if you and some people feel that they'd rather read a book after they've watched uh, the, the movie that's been made on it others have another way of looking at it so <laughs> so yeah I mean I'm gonna read the book and then watch the movie and I'm, I'm looking forward to that thank you <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, you did mention that you keep going back to Ethiopia 
what is the place of Ethiopian women in society today? Because I mean, from, you know, what I understand from what you've written in the, in the Shadow King, the women, you know, it's, I think the main protagonist also is a woman and, you know, the women seem to have been very empowered and they were in, in the forefront of the war. I don't know if I can call it that. Mm-hmm. So what is, how are the Ethiopian women in the society today at what, you know, how are they kind of treated? Are they, mm-hmm. uh, are they empowered? Okay, I think um, in in general, Ethiopia is a patriarchal society. Women have taken part in in wars. There have been women who have fought in in almost every every encounter that that Ethiopia has had. But that doesn't mean that when they return back home from the battlefield, that they they're treated as as fully equal. It, Ethiopia, like like most other countries, is still governed by by the laws or by rules that will I don't know what that will offer more respect, more honor, more privilege to men and boys rather than girls and women. There's a generation of Ethiopians now, a new generation, who have been fighting the the old laws or the old rules of patriarchy. They have been insisting that communities, that the country speak of domestic violence, of sexual assaults, that they are insisting that women be heard, that girls are heard, that they're not blamed. There's an insistence on recognizing the worth of girls and women. This is happening across this society in the business side, through the arts, in schools, within the government, we have a a female president, we have a woman who is head of the Supreme Court. This is, I mean, these are huge steps. There's still a ways to go. But I I have faith in in a new generation that, that is rising up and insisting on equal rights for everyone. Yeah, and I guess it's a process, and it will it will take time. Any any change uh, right. of that magnitude does does take time. But I'm yes. happy to hear that you know things are moving forward. Um, and in that respect, I wanted to ask you about Project Three Five Four One. What mm-hmm. is that? Oh, thank you for asking about that. That is an online artistic endeavor. It's also educational. I have created a website that features the photography and the stories of people who were involved in one way or another in the Italo-Ethiopian War of 1935. I'm seeking stories as well as photographs from people who may have a family member that was connected to this conflict, this moment in history in any way. So I'm reaching out to everyone, Italians, Ethiopians, other East Africans, British, people who who might have relatives who are part of the British forces that were there. I've gotten responses from people in Kenya. I have found connections to people in India. Sudan. It was a global enterprise. So I'm asking anyone who might have a family story 
connected to this to go to the website, www.project3541.com. And there's a way to contact me that way. And what is it that you're planning to do with all this information? We will be sharing it online. I have a monthly newsletter that people can subscribe to. And each month there is a theme. Um, And we'll be sending out these newsletters. And it will become, it's a place for people to to have encounters with other aspects of this history that they may not have known about, maybe even to recognize parts of their own history and what is on the website. Yeah, so you're basically keeping it alive. Yes. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Are you writing another book with Ethiopia as the backdrop? I am not sure yet. (laughs) I am not sure yet. I have been really just exploring stories and seeing what comes because I know that once I settle into something, I will really be in it for a long time. So I'm keeping things open for now. Okay. All right. Good luck with that. But I'm sure... I'm sure eventually what whatever it is that will get published will be as good, if not better, than The Shadow King. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Maza. It's just been wonderful talking to you. And thank you for sharing your journey with my listeners and with me. And I look forward to one, the movie, and two, your new book. As Thank you. both happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye bye. For more weekly conversations, do listen to Melting Pot on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on YouTube and on Instagram at Podcast Melting Pot. So until the next episode, this is Pyle signing off. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.